Welcome to the ladies' room. As always, we are your hosts. She is Jane McManus. I am Julie DeCaro. We are here to talk sports and other stuff. Jane, it has been uh, sports by and large. I don't want to say are done because obviously the NBA is going on, the NHL is going on, but uh, we have a lot less sports with football going on these days without football. How are you doing? Um, you know, I, I'll be honest, like this is the first week and maybe it's because the Super Bowl is over and I primarily have covered during my career, the NFL. So I kind of, you know, I checked the schedule by that sport, uh, but I'm not doing fine. You know, I'm kind of, uh, it's been tough and I think it's the cumulative weather. Um, you know, we all see what's happening in Texas and people going without power in freezing conditions with homes that are used to baking summers. Yep. And you know, the, I, I, the pandemic wears on and on and I just, you know, we're still kind of not leaving the house and engaging socially. And I, I just don't feel fine anymore. I just don't, I feel low at like a low level, um, in terms of energy and everything else. I know I'm not alone on this and I, so I'm I'm being honest about it. And I know that there, you know, we are in a relatively uh fortunate position. So I don't have to worry about, you know, making sure we have enough food. I'm donating to our our local food shelters and um healthcare providers to make sure that people in our area that do deal with those concerns have resources. But, you know, I just I don't know. I think this is I think this is having an effect on everybody. And I hadn't I'd felt it here and there, but I kind of am feeling it in a more sustained way these days. How about you, Julie? Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad that you said that because I I think that, you know, we, every time you say or admit to not being fine, like on social media, you get a million people saying, oh yeah, well, this many people are out of work or this many people are dead. And it's, it's not a zero sum game, you know? It's not like either you're great or you're dead. You know, there's there's all these shades in the middle. And I, and I think that it's, we should be talking more about the mental health of everyone that is just sort of okay, but plodding along. And it seems like there's no end to this in sight. And when do we get back to normal? We used to think, you know, this year would be back to normal. Now it's looking like maybe not. You've got all these people that say they're not going to get the vaccine. Like, are we going to get to herd immunity? Is stuff going to open back up? I mean, and and then there's the whole, you know, watching stuff open back up, knowing that this is not where we're supposed to be yet. I think it's, there's a lot going on right now. And, and in addition to that, this is the time of year where the NBA and NHL playoffs are a million miles away. Baseball is just gearing up with spring training. Football is over. So traditionally, these are the February doldrums anyway for sports and toss a, you know, a year of a pandemic on top of it. And I'm, you know, I'm not surprised that people aren't feeling okay right now. Yeah, I think it's it's just hard to feel motivated and engaged. Um, and I feel like I've also, you know, been working hard and I'm sure you have too. And I'm sure a lot of people do. And they're kind of the emotional caretakers in their family trying to yeah. make sure that the other people around them are okay. And, you know, 
So I, that is also that is also a factor. And you know, some people have obviously been providing that service for me, <laughs> which is nice. You know, my my husband went out of his way to throw me an incredible fiftieth birthday party, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though you know there are not a lot of things. That my dream of like going to Portugal for my fiftieth with Aww. you know twenty of my best girlfriends is not materializing. Um, but you know, we'll figure things out and, and, you know, really trying hard to kind of make that a a milestone that, um, that was still celebrated in our house, which was nice, but, you know, I just, I feel like, you know, like everybody else that, you know, your, your role is still there. You still have to perform the tasks that you always do. And the, the gas in the tank is just getting lower and lower. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, and I think it's, I think we should all be talking more, not necessarily complaining or whining, but I think that there is um, there is value in admitting that things are disappointing to you, that you're disappointed, even if you're grateful for what you have. You know, I mean, I'm supposed to have a book tour that I'm not going to have, you know, and that is what I've dreamed about since, I don't know, I was a little kid, you know, like launching a book and going on a book tour and, you know, and, and it's not going to happen now. And of course, I know there's people that are way less fortunate than I am. But it doesn't stop it from being, dis- you know, stop me from being disappointed in that. And and there's things like that for all of us in this pandemic, you know, like vacations and seeing family. And yeah, I mean, it's, and, yeah. At Marist, I see all of these, you know, students who didn't get to, who didn't get a traditional graduation, who are struggling in the job market because, right. you know, entry-level jobs have, have really, you know, become more scarce. And, and so it's, yeah, it's not, I, I have my own disappointments and I will live. Um, but I think there are people who obviously the challenges of this era are much greater, but I, I think we're all, all allowed to experience everything in the way that we do. Um, and, you know, I, I look forward to times when we can, you know, have celebrations and, you know, just be together and have a backyard barbecue or something and uh, not have to worry about whether or not that ends with somebody getting sick. But we yeah. don't have that now. And I think, you know, for everybody, it's not just the, it's not just the big things that you miss. Um, it is also the little interactions I think that you miss. And, and it's, I I mean, I think I didn't realize how important those were to me, just, you know, being at school and running into students in the hallway and, you know, talking to them about what are you working on and, um, what are you hoping to do after graduation? Stuff like those little kinds of just interactions are gone for the most part. They don't happen on Zoom in the same way. Well, and then, yeah. And then on top of that, there's the frustration of seeing the people that have never stopped, you know, like uh, that have just lived their lives as if there is no pandemic. And I've found that this week I am sort of grieving for the way that I used to feel about those people versus the way that I feel about them now, <laughs> which is like these people used to be wonderful friends to me who I valued and cherished. And now I'm like, wow, you're a selfish bitch, like, you know, <laughs> and I, and like that wears on you too. Like when you're mad at people all the time, because every time you open Facebook, they're on vacation somewhere in Florida. Like this is it's, the glory of not having Facebook, Julie, is that I don't have to see, I don't have to see that. And I have to say most of the people that I know, and maybe it's the difference between, you know, the Northeast and the Midwest, but I, I, most of the people I know are being pretty responsible and are worried about their parents and are trying to get their parents. What's your point about the Midwest, Jane? Say it. I'm from Nebraska. We might as well fight while we're here. Let's go. <laughs> I live in New York, but I'm from Nebraska. Like I understand the Midwest. <laughs> I say that with love, but I I know there are probably a lot of my classmates that are not following rules. No, I mean, know? I have a friend who has probably gone on five, six vacations since this thing started. 
all over the place. She's had it on a plane unless I had like a relative who was really ill. She she got it. Her husband got it. She gave it to her parents. And then she's still traveling all over the world. Like, I just, I don't understand it. That's tough. That is tough. Yeah. Um, Do you want to talk about, should we talk about the Super Bowl? Because I actually think these two things are related. I know this is going to sound silly. Okay. But the, the Super Bowl ratings were down this year. Yeah. And they were really down among 18 to 49 year olds. Um, People under 50, young people, which is, not a demographic the NFL can really afford to lose. And I think part of the part of the issue, and I know we had the Nickelodeon game, which was fun and meant to engage kids and younger people. Um, and of course, nostalgic oldies such as ourselves. But um, I think that part of the reason it's, it, you know, if you're not really engaged and you're not really looking forward to things, why are you going to turn on a football game? You know, the, that kind of like cultural, social enthusiasm for the game I just don't think it was here this year in the exact same way. And I think the ratings reflect that. I also, I agree. And, but don't discount the people like me who just didn't want to look at Tom Brady's stupid face. anymore. (laughs) Although I did watch, I mean, obviously I watched the game. Um, I, you know, can we just talk about freaking Tom Brady after, you know, I have held back thus far on letting loose on Tom Brady. But um, I'd like to just before you do, I'd just like to just a shout out to all of our Boston area fans who are joining us on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I know that he is a guy who lives in his own world, who can do things like fight to have Antonio Brown on two different teams and go through two weeks of Super Bowl interviews. And no one even asks him about Antonio Brown's victims and if he thought about how they feel. Um but the the party afterwards on the boat with tossing the trophy and everything with no mask on after we got two weeks of stories about how his dad almost died of COVID and the, the pass that this guy gets from everyone is just kind of unbelievable to me. Right. Nobody ever mentions the fact that he, he left his girlfriend and son for Giselle Bündchen. That's completely not erased from the history books. Um, so I, I hear you on that. And I mean, I, here's, I'm going to offer a counterpoint as somebody who very much believes in responsibility in the era of COVID. But I think when you have a league that puts on a game and has, you know, really kind of created a scenario where there was play those players were together 24 seven for two weeks leading up to that game, flies them all down to Florida, you know, has 25,000 fans in the stands, including of course, uh, 7,500 vaccinated people, or as I like to say, the window dressing for everybody else who was there who wasn't vaccinated. Um, you know, I think it gives you a sense that it doesn't really matter. It just doesn't matter. You've already been risking everything for your job 24 seven for the last three months. Why not risk it for another couple hours on a boat with some of your nearest and dearest? That, I can I understand even, that mentality. I don't think he even thinks about risking it. I think he's just Tom Brady and he does whatever he wants. Well, I, I can't get into his head, although I could get into his head when he was stumbling off the boat because I've definitely been there. <laughs> 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 Not for a while. But the other thing is, I do think it also uh, points to the importance of an occasional piece of red meat in your diet. <laughs> Seriously, have some strawberries, Tom. <laughs> Oh my lord, that is a special kind of drunk, is it not? I mean, it is. unbelievable. And then he got on Twitter afterwards, 
Well, he made like, fun of it, which is fine. I mean, it's I mean, that's the best way to handle it, really, because the, the, the shame that must have been coursing through his body, if he feels it. I don't know. I, can't, I don't, as I said. I don't, I just don't think there's anything fun or charming or, or anything about Tom Brady. Like I find that guy to be so obnoxious. And, um, I just had to, I just had to say that. Because you know, every, it's kind of like, aren't they kind of like Laurel and Hardy? They're kind of like the modern day, you know, bro comedy routine, him and Gronk. Yeah, they so, absolutely are. So, you know, I can't take it all that seriously. They're playing roles. Unfortunately, you know, that down deep, you know, Rob Gronkowski's body is like, you know, broken matchsticks underneath flesh. Yep. You know, from all of the abuse that he's taken. And he seems to be having a good time. And these are moments that are going to be, you know, these are moments that are good for them. And and I I don't know. I can't get too mad at them in the moment after they win a Super Bowl, even though I, you know, I, I don't root for them. I don't, um, you know, I certainly report on them when, when things don't go right. And, and, but at the same time, I do, um, I do think it's kind of fun. I think, it, I mean, I think that routine is kind of, it's lighthearted. It's jovial. I don't, sometimes it, it doesn't have to be more than that. I guess my, a lot of my rage towards Brady is also directed at the, all the guys in the media who just love him and never ask him hard questions. Cause they're like so excited to be asking Tom Brady a question. And it, the whole thing to me is just exhausting. Well, that, that I can totally get. And it also, you know, but it extends so far into the sports world. Yeah, it does. It's, there's so much, there's so much of our coverage that is just rah, rah, predictive optimism, you know, that is, everything's going to be great. Everybody's going to be winning the season. Coach is a great coach. You know, there's so much of that, that yeah. uh, kind of the relentless positivity of sports journalism um, that, you know, I, I, that Tom Brady is the least of it. It's really more of an endemic thing where journalism, sports journalism, refusing to take itself seriously. But, I mean, Antonio Brown is not playing in the league if it's not for Tom Brady. Twice! And, like, why people give him a pass for that, I have no idea. I just, kept, I just kept tweeting out the uh, the um, lawsuit against Antonio Brown with the horrific rape allegations in it. Yeah, I mean, it's really disturbing. And, and you know... The, you look around the league and of course we had a, we had a coach who, an assistant coach who had to resign this week for, for something different, but also disturbing. Um, <laughs> I forgot all about that. Right. Ah. So, so why limit, why limit your, your uh, disgust to Antonio Brown when there's so much else? That is true. Really and you know, when, when Urban Meyer got this job, I was like, what about Urban Meyer do you think is going to translate to the NFL? Because this guy is used to ruling in fiefdom where he is unquestioned. And his like, oh, he's a friend of mine for 20 years. Good old boy shit is not going to work in the NFL. Well, maybe. They apparently think that it is. So we'll have to see. We'll see if the, how far open the Overton window stretches when it comes to what's allowed uh, in terms of a, you know, what the NFL is willing to accept on this C- clearly wasn't, wasn't, wasn't willing to ex- accept an assistant coach who'd been, who'd made some, some racist comments. Um, but we'll see, you never know. So, yeah. So NFL ratings, um, so f- Super Bowl ratings weren't great. Um, do you want to talk about the weekend? I mean, just as long as we're talking about the Super Bowl, we're only like 10 days late. I have never seen so many uh, people who I considered cool sounding like my parents did when I was watching like the Beastie Boys. Like, you know, what is this? Oh, my God, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Like, 
I was just wanting to be my friends. Like, do you hear yourself right now? You are an old person. Well, that's so true. <laughs> I've, I've come to, I'm just, I'm embracing my oldness now, but I, but I will say also the sound quality was really poor at the it beginning was of the up. set. And I think that kind of, it was kind of like, why is this guy, you know, mumbling over synthesizers? <laughs> you know? So I've got teenage boys who listen to The weekend, and I've heard, you know, his music is around my house. And so I knew the songs and was kind of excited for it. And I think he's super talented, but oh my God, the reaction was so over the top. You know, this was though, this was a, this was a halftime show that grew on me. I started off thinking, why can't I hear him? I want to hear him. <laughs> and then at the end, I was like, all right, okay. I enjoyed that. You know, ultimately I enjoyed it. My opinion changed as I think they fixed the sound quality or something, but he's also, he, you know, he, people discount. I didn't hear people talking about the Bruno Mars show, which I thought was a really good show. And I had been very negative about Bruno Mars because I was like, Jay-Z deserves to be every halftime show. He is the most underrated live performer, I think, living today. That was my impression. And, you know, people start, of course, every halftime act gets compared to every other halftime act that's ever been. And so Prince is always brought up and everything. And okay, great. Prince was great. Prince was great. But I... You know, there have been a couple that have been pretty decent recently. I thought Katy Perry wasn't terrible. And, you know, these are, but those are ones I was actually at the game. So I mm-hmm. didn't experience on TV in the same way. But, like, I thought Bruno Mars really rocked it. And um, that makes me sound old. He really rocked it. Um, he, he rocked it. It was really he rocked hip. the house, everyone. Yeah, he, he rocked, rocked the house. The house. Um, but, it, but so I thought there were other ones. I thought the weekend was fine. You know, it wasn't terrible. Jay-Z should have been the New York Super Bowl halftime performer the yeah. problem is the nfl doesn't pay people and so actual artists who want to be paid for their work and who aren't pepsi you know who who don't have a relationship with pepsi and endorse pepsi then are always kind of frozen now and that's why you have the slate of that you have that's a good point um i can't remember what i was gonna say it was gonna that's be really right. good it was gonna I, be really I've clearly given this a lot of thought though oh 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 over the years. If- If you haven't seen, I tweet this out all the time and people are tired of me talking about it, but if you don't know what we're talking about with Bruno Mars and you're like, oh my God, the guy that sings that, I think I want to marry you song, Google Bruno Mars's tribute to Amy Winehouse where he sang Valerie. It is fantastic. And like one of my favorite live performances ever. Just going to say that. Okay. He's very good. All right, let's move on to our guest this week. Uh, We'll take a quick break and be right back here in the ladies room. We are thrilled to welcome to the ladies' room this week Sam Rappaport. She is a former player, director of football development for the NFL. Sam, we're so excited to have you here. I know it's been a really busy time for you with the season and the Super Bowl and everything. Before, I know Jane has like a million questions. Before I let <laughs> Jane get jump in here, I have to ask you one question because every time I put this out in an article or on social media, all the men just start screaming that it's not true. So I just want to hear it from you. Uh-huh. Women make up nearly 50% of the NFL's audience. True or not true? Absolutely true. We make up 47%. There you have audience. it. <laughs> no debating it. Yeah. Every time I say it, guys are like, there's no way that's true. Well, you know, I, I feel as though uh, a lot of people are not aware of, you know, the avidity level that women have as far as fans go for this sport. Uh, but women, you know, we get it. We're not surprised. So, you know, it'll, it may take some time, but no debating the fact that we make up half the fan base. 
Absolutely. Sam, it is so good to talk to you. I, I want to start off by saying, though, that one of the most amazing things about you is that you played quarterback for the Montreal Blitz for many years. And when you first applied to the NFL for a job, you did it by sending them a football and saying it like a note inside the football. And, and you can say better than I can what you wrote. Sure. Yeah. I felt as it was back in 2003 and I felt as though I had to stand out in my application because I had no connections to the NFL. I wasn't even living in, in the United States. Uh, I'm Canadian. And so I wrote, uh, I played quarterback and on a football in a Sharpie, I wrote what other quarterback could accurately deliver a pass 386 miles, which was the distance between Montreal where I was and New York city. And so, you know, it's, it's gimmicky. Um, yeah. I hope people don't, women don't have to do that now to get jobs, but right. truthfully it was something that set me apart. And I really just wanted to demonstrate how badly I wanted to work in football. And I, I assume that I got the message across. Yeah. And it's brilliant. Um, I think also because it sets you apart and it says, you know, I'm not just, um, you know, I'm not just interested in a job. I'm interested in football. And um, to me, that's always been kind of what you bring to the table and how you go about trying to find people who are right to work in the league. And um, I think, you know, the beginning of this really is the idea that football is for men and for boys and not for women. And I think that's probably the first stereotype that you have to try to counter when you're talking about and advocating for women to get jobs in football. Absolutely. No question. It's, it's kind of the number one barrier we hear from people who are skeptical is, well, you never played or, you know, you, you must not have grown up with the sport. So, how, you know, how can you work in it? But you know, if, if you think about it, the people that are leading the way with this, with our head coaches and general managers who are opening their doors to all, all, all types of marginalized people, is they all know that that's crazy. I mean, we heard Super Bowl winning head coach Bruce Arians say, you know, some of women are the best teachers and, you know, if you could teach, you can coach. And so you certainly don't have to have played the game. We have many male executives who have never touched a football um, but just love the sport. And women are no different than that. It is not a prerequisite to have played this game to work. In it. I remember you used to use Adam Gase as the example of a coach who had not um, had not played uh, football in college or in the NFL. And maybe he doesn't seem like a great example anymore. Sorry. <laughs> 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 that I, I bring that up, of course, because I covered the Jets for many years. But also, you know, you you make a great point because I can remember my first stitches were from trying to tackle somebody's dad in just a game of football I was playing in the neighborhood when I was nine years old. Uh, I was successful with the tackle. And then I rode somebody's big wheel to the emergency room. Um, <laughs> so kind, kind of my origin story, really, as a sports right. writer. Um, but I just I think that's so important. And so um just if you could a little bit, you were hired in 2016. And what are the changes that you've seen um, since then in terms of when it comes to the acceptance level that different teams have for hiring women? Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable to see. You know, when, when we started, there were only one or two head coaches that had hired female coaches, and there were very few female scouts in the league. And what we've seen is a couple of things. First of all, We've seen a lot of peer-to-peer -peer pressure among head coaches and general managers, which, you know, been kind of an inflection point for this effort in that, you know, Coach Ron Rivera stood up at the annual meeting. No media was in the room. It was just all 32 head coaches. And he was like, guys, why have you never considered the other half of the population? That was unprompted. That had nothing to do with us. That was all him kind of saying, guys, what are we doing? 
Uh, and subsequently, you know, Coach Harbaugh hired women, Coach Grable hired women, uh, you know, so it really is starting a trend where what I'm hoping is happening is that clubs are realizing that if they're not doing this, they're behind the curve uh, and that they need to catch up with their more progressive peers. Yeah. And, you know, Sam, watching the Super Bowl, I kept seeing people, <laughs> I kept seeing, because it's so, it's so, um, I don't want to say like earth shattering, but I mean, it almost, it is to see a woman on the sidelines. I mean, obviously we saw Katie Sowers a year ago. Now she's out of a job. So it's like, while we're seeing all these women coming in, um, we're also seeing women exiting who, as far as I know, you know, she's still unemployed. Um, but, you know, it was so funny to see people saying there are so many women involved in the Super Bowl. And I was sort of like, OK, well, there's three. I mean, that's not you know, that's no, nowhere near where we should be. Um, you know, and we talk about this a lot with the broadcast booth that you have to sort of see it to believe it. And that it never occurred to me that I could do play by play growing up because I just never saw any women doing this. So how do we get to the point where we are just sort of making women on the sidelines ubiquitous and something that everyone is used to seeing? Because I know there's a ton of moms out there, myself included, who not only grew up playing football with the boys on the block, but who also, you know, held pads at practice and led stretches and, you know, called out up downs and all kinds of stuff for their kids when they were playing football. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Representation is so key for what you're talking about, Julie. And you know, Katie Sowers was the first coach, female coach to coach in the Super Bowl. And then we had uh, Lowe and MJ, who were the second and third, uh, you know, at the same time. And, you know, what that's doing is it's becoming less and less of a story every Super Bowl. So there was a giant spotlight on Katie last last season. Uh, this year, there certainly was spotlight on, on Lowe and MJ. And my guess would be it would continue to die down every year until we stop talking about it. And that ubiquity that you talk about, you know, that's what we're shooting for. We are shooting for normalization where we want to we want to celebrate the firsts, but we want to get past them so we can start celebrating normalization. And we've already seen progress in that space. But, you know, to your point about, you know, being the only one or two, Bruce Arians, you know, truly walks the walk in that when he was looking to hire women, he didn't want to hire one. So the entire spotlight would be on her. And if she failed, the female gender does not belong in football. It is, it's not fair. And people do that to people of color and to women all the time. And so I applaud him so much for saying, you know what, not only we're not only bring one, we're going to bring two and we're going to continue to do this. And, you know, the commitment from the Bucks all the way from the top has just it's been remarkable to see this season. Yeah. And he was, you know, Bruce Arians, he was the one who hired Jen Welcher to be the training camp coach in Arizona. And a lot of people within the league at that time felt like that didn't go very well. Um, and I think you know, looking back on that, the league did learn quite a bit uh, about what the, you know, what the pressure would be like on that person, uh, what the coach would have to do in order to talk about that, that there was just a whole lot that went around with it, went along with it. And that it, and that normalization was really, I think, exactly what you're talking about. And I was, you know, when I was preparing to talk to you today, I, I was looking back over some old stories that I'd done about women hired in the league, and also then looking at the coaches um, who work there, who work in the league now. And, you know, it's, I know Katie Sowers is is no longer in San Francisco, but that actually is something that's very normal within the coaching ranks is that coaches change teams a lot mm -hmm. um, and they don't stick around very long at individual teams all the time. 
you know, uh, head coaching staffs change and, and all of this. So that's not all that unusual. Um, but it is, it would be unusual if they only get the one shot and then fall out of the league. Um, so is there, you know, are you looking for ways of kind of, um, talking about that as well? Yeah, Jean, I feel like that's so astute of you to point out because, you know, a lot of the time people point to one or two female scouts or coaches or whomever that that are no longer employed, but, you know, some of my closest friends are male coaches who are absolutely fantastic coaches and got lost in that, you know, in the, in the annual coaching shuffle and are unemployed. And so while I certainly hope, you know, Jen and Katie land coaching roles wherever they want to go because they deserve it, that's the business, right? Like male, female, or any gender that, that, you know, that you identify as, that is going to happen to you in the coaching world is that it is, it's difficult, it's transient. Uh, there's very little security and, you know, it's, it's a difficult business in that sense where if there's turnover, you may just be, uh, you know, a product of overall turnover and not, it may have nothing to do with how you personally coach. You know, Sam, I've got to ask this question and, and people are going to get angry with me for asking it, but, you know, I've heard a lot about Bruce Arians and I know he's received awards for, um, you know, for promoting women into his organization. And I'm extremely appreciative of him because of that. Um, at the same time, Antonio Brown's on his team and the allegations against him, um, by a sexual woman who claims he sexually assaulted her are absolutely horrific. And, you know, just being honest, it has been really difficult for me to reconcile those two things and to be like, Bruce Arians is great for women and then be like, yeah. So, you know, and it's 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 one of those tensions that I think that women that love the NFL struggle with. It's that, you know, on the one hand, these people, these men that you admire so much for doing one thing, there's it's a lot of times there's something else that makes you be like, as a woman. Yeah, I absolutely hear that. And I, I've heard that from, you know, from several female fans as well. And I, you know, I'd have to let the box come in on that. I have no idea how that transaction transpired or, you know, any details associated with it. But, you know, I could say is I certainly hear that. I read that. I take that in. And I think that, you know, clubs will certainly take that into consideration with, you know, the decisions they make in the future. When you, you and I ch- have chatted a little bit about this too. And, and, um, and it's not just about giving women opportunities, but it's this idea that just untethering uh, the idea of what a person can do from, you know, what their identity is, whether it's, uh, you know, race or gender or sexual orientation um, and being able to consider people who are qualified for any of those roles. Um, and that seems to me also to be, you've got a lot of jobs at the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. that seems to me part of your challenge as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, part of, you know, what we've done from the beginning and, you know, under the leadership of Troy Vincent and Daisha Smith and Jonathan Bean, certainly the priority has been, you know, to help serve marginalized folks, get connected with football and franchise them to what we're doing. So everything we're doing more reflects what this country and this world looks like. And, you know, it's not just about doing the right thing. There's no question that it's about operating at a higher level. Uh, you know, we don't want to alienate LGBTQ plus fans. We don't want to alienate Black and Latinx fans, right? We want everyone to feel as though this sport is theirs because it is. And so the way to do that is to include everyone that you just mentioned. And so it's not about women only, you know, something we do very intentionally in our program is we have a strong focus on women of color uh, with, a, with a strong focus on Black women. Uh, because what we've noticed in our programming is that and studying other programming is that as soon as you initiate or effectuate gender diversity programming, white women are the beneficiaries every time. 
And so if you don't intentionally uh, put forth an effort to ensure that what we do is the majority of women in our program are women of color with an emphasis on black women uh, to make sure that all women are getting in the door and not just white women. And that, that really, it really helps then to go into women's tackle leagues. And that's where you came from also. And just you, you know, how do you, how do you mine that for, for women who are going to be able to make a transition? Because it's one thing to obviously to be a good player. We see this with men as well, but it's one thing to be a good player. And it's another thing to be, you know, an official and be able to see the ball. It's another thing to be able to, you know, to communicate what you know to somebody else as a coach. How do you, how do you identify those people that are particularly uh, have a lot of potential? So uh, two things there. So the way that we've identified is when I was at USA football, uh, I ran a program called the uh, women's world football games. And it was a program where for one week we brought female tackle football players from all over the world. There were 21 countries involved uh, to one football field for one week to learn from some of the best coaches in the country. And, you know, while I was running this program, I was looking around thinking, why the hell are these women not working in football, right? They love it. They'll travel from New Zealand and Russia and China to come play football for a week. Uh, You know, why are they not working in the sport? And it really kind of clicked that that's, that's our target demographic, right? You certainly do not have to play tackle football. We have many women coaching, scouting, and in football operations who did not play. Um, but it is such a great talent pool from which to pull. And, you know, that's really where we started. And then area to that is, you know, my, my co-pilot on this program, Vanessa Hutchinson, uh, you know, she spends a great deal of time with her team scouring the country for women who are currently working in entry-level college football roles because, we know that they already have experience. They have a head coach or, or someone who can speak on their behalf, uh, you know, and they, they've kind of dipped their foot in the waters as far as football goes. So they're, they're, they're very hireable from our GM standpoint. And, and we, we did that based on feedback we heard from the general managers. You know, they said we like hiring people that have a little college football under their belt. Uh, so that's we made that shift after the year you came, Jane, you're our OG media member from 2017. But, uh, you know, we made that adjustment after that because, uh, you know, we heard from the head coaches and GMs what they were looking for, and we wanted to match that puzzle piece as much as possible. So I wanted to ask a little bit about Callie Brownson, I guess, because this flows into a bigger question. You know, in the NBA, we've seen Becky Hammond um, coach the team on the floor, and I think a lot of people have sort of suggested that she is going to be the heir apparent to Popovich there. And it seems to be something that people have sort of accepted that one day there will be a female NBA head coach. Um, you know, at this point, women, um, we haven't seen women in coordinator positions or or outside of Callie Brownson, who I think was a wide receivers coach for one game and tight ends coach for one game because of COVID. Um, you know, we haven't seen women yet moving their way up the ranks, but I'm just curious, you know, in our lifetimes, do you think that we see a woman as a head coach in the National Football League? I really do, Julie. And I, you know, that's a great question. And I think, you know, there's no question that Coach Stefanski is putting Callie on that trajectory. So mm-hmm. he's such a fantastic guy. And, you know, what he's done, the days Callie stepped in was he put her on a development plan and said, this is where I see you in two years. This is where I see you in five years. This is where I see you in 10 years. And, you know, I don't, I, you know, it's up to Callie if she wants to go that route. And I believe she does. But, you know, it, it takes people like that to say, let me, let me bring you into rooms, right? Let me expose you to things like elevating her twice to a positional coach, which was a big deal this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it really takes a head coach like that who can take the time to do it. And, you know, he has been such an incredible mentor to Cali this, this season and beyond. 
and just one of those unique people that really kind of wants what's best for her and will help her advance in her career in that way. So, you know, it's hard to take out the magic eight ball and predict, but we we have it because this, this effort is still very much in its infancy. And, you know, as much as I don't want to be patient, sometimes we all have to be patient with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would assume that we would see, uh, you know, females rising in the ranks uh, within the next five to 10 years. And, I, you know, we had our first female positional coach at the D1 level, Heather Marini, who was a graduate of our program. Uh, she coaches quarterbacks for Brown. And so, we, we, you know, the seeds are planted and now we just have to wait for the trees to grow. Yeah, for sure. Well, and that's, that is the big thing, right? Because there's a difference between potential and experience, right? You, you, you need the experience that Becky Hammond is getting. I mean, I would argue that Becky Hammond's probably ready, but, but um, you do, you do need to be able to gain that experience and learn from it in order to be a good coach. I do think that the other larger thing that you are up against um, is uh, there is the difference between being able to um, take talented people and uh, present them with opportunities at the team level. It's another thing to face up against the culture of football, which has often been uh, overwhelmingly male and kind of reinforcing masculine values. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with the Antonio Brown stuff is, is, is I think emblematic of that. And there, you know, there are lots of other examples, but it is in some ways about changing hearts and minds as much as, as it is giving people the job opportunities. And, and is that, is that, I mean, that's a bigger, that's a bigger puzzle and it's not necessarily something that is easily fixable. And it's also not necessarily at the team level, the league level. It's, it's also at the fan base level and all sorts of things like this. So are there any bigger picture strategies to kind of address um, just what, you know, this, I, again, what I said at the beginning, which is the idea that there are sports that are boys sports and sports that are girls sports and that we can't, we can't mix them. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Yeah, there's no question we have an uphill battle with that, right? I mean, uh, football has been a male dominated sport since it started for 101 years within the NFL. And so, you know, the, the first part of your question, you know, bringing women into the league and introducing them to folks, that's the diversity function. And, you know, what you're asking is really the inclusion function. So once we get them in there, you know, what are we doing to make sure they are successful? And, you know, there, there are several things that we have in place to start to do that. But, you know, to give you you know an example is when females started coaching, there were no uh, locker rooms for women and there was no apparel for women on the sidelines. So first of all, there was nowhere for them to go to the bathroom in the game or change or shower after the game, right? Female coaches like the men get to do. Um, they were all wearing men's clothing where some of the women like to wear men's clothing, but some of them don't fit into men's clothing and don't want that. And so they visually looked like they didn't belong because it looked like they were wearing their, you know, fathers or boyfriends or whomever's clothing. And I've been in that because I used to rest, officiate football. So I, I, I felt that. Um, and so, you know, what, what we did was we worked with our consumer products group to create an, uh, an exact replica Nike line for females on the sideline. So that is no longer a problem. We've worked with all 32 clubs and all stadiums to make sure that there are that we have uh, plans in place for everyone to be able to change, shower and get ready. If, you know, assuming we have female coaches on both sidelines and a female official. Uh, and we also do a lot of talking with our general managers and head coaches. I'm just one of many people who have a lot of, you know, off the cuff discussions. And I give uh, Thomas Dimitrov, who uh, is the former GM of the Falcons, he would call me frequently to ask questions. And I, I admired this so much about him to ask questions about like, hey, what do you think about this? And like, you know, he started saying something and I would, I would say like, let's not, let's not call women girls, right? That's a very common thing that we hear in football, in sports in general, 
is they'd say, oh, like the girls are here, right? Like girls are under 18. And so they're the women. And like, he was like, you're absolutely right. And he would constantly want to improve in that way. And so we're having those discussions behind the scenes. And we're also working with the clubs and the stadiums on one to make sure that we start to break these barriers down one by one. You know, that sort of has me thinking, Sam, about something that I think a lot of women face, um, you know, whenever you're the one. And I know it happens a lot in in sports journalism, um, you know, that there's one woman in a room and it can be really, really isolating, um, no matter how good the intentions are of the men around you. And, and certainly, um, you know, I, I think we've seen, you know, what fans, how cruel they can be, um, especially on social media. So I'm just curious, is there any kind of emotional support or, or checking in with the women who are in these positions just because they are sort of the first through the wall to make sure that they don't wind up the bloodiest? There, they are. There are. Yeah, we have, um, I give uh, two women from the Philadelphia Eagles a ton of credit, uh, Catherine Raich and Amina Solomon. Both women are on the football side. And, you know, together with me, we kind of created this um like WhatsApp chat and community of every woman who's working on the football side. And we meet regularly through Zoom. We connect people one-on-one. So they have opportunities to talk to each other. And you're you're absolutely bang on about people feeling very isolated. And we hear that from many women saying, I'm the only one, I'm the only one. And they want to connect with other women to get a sense of, to have a sense of community, but also to be able to talk about, you know, how to navigate certain things, some that have to do with being a woman and some that are just general you know, football discussions. And so we've created that community and, you know, we, we continue to foster it. And, you know, coming up in a couple of weeks, we're hosting a session with an agent to try to help uh, some of the women in the group get connected with agents so they can have representatives when they're negotiating their contract. So, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a program per se, but it certainly is a support, I don't want to say support group, but, you know, it's, it's a way of connecting women in the NFL. So they feel as though we're all out for each other. And it is such a beautiful community, Julie. It really is everyone trying to lift everyone up and, and, and helping out in any way. And it's, it's a beautiful thing when it's done organically like that. We, we have definitely talked on this podcast um, about, especially when we talked about Kimming and, you know, how cool it is that she got that opportunity that she had earned and was probably ready for 10 years ago. Um, but that so, at some point it gets tired. You get tired of having to celebrate these things because you feel like what you were really doing is having pointed out to you how efficient those patriarchal structures are that have been able to keep women from attaining the opportunities that they've been experienced and ready for. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I so I kind of you know as much as I am excited when women do get um, opportunities, I also would love for that critical mass to be there. And you talked about that a little bit and just how far away it. I feel like. In the last couple of years, the NFL has made a lot of progress with hiring women. And and just to get a sense of optimism or pessimism from you uh, with what the future holds. Yeah, what what we've noticed is that, you know, as the league progresses and our, our head coaches and our general managers are starting to be younger and younger, right? And those are the people from that generation, you know, some of the millennial generation, um, you know, that are, that are, have those open minds and kind of like, if you look at a Kevin Stefanski, like he wouldn't think twice, right? Like he would think mm-hmm. you're crazy to even, to even debate this. And so, you know, that old school mentality that football is, you know, um, that is for men only and, and women don't belong kind of is kind of dying out. And, you know, I feel very optimistic and confident that it will die out once we have, you know, younger progressive leaders that are coming in. 
And, you know, I can't say this unequivocally, but I would venture to say that none of our young head coaches and general managers are, are putting up barriers. They're, they're, they're doing the opposite. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, what John Lynch has done with his scouting team, um, you know, and what, uh, as I mentioned, Kevin Sapransky, what Brandon Bean is doing with his scouting team. I mean, it's like, it's the young guys now, you know, at this point that are really saying like, let's, let's open this up to everyone. And, you know, we will, we will, you know, to Julie's earlier question, we will have a female general manager on our lifetime as well. We have a couple that are already ready. I don't know if you both know Donna Ponte, who is our chief mm-hmm. football officer mm-hmm. at the big office, but um, unequivocally the most brilliant person I've ever met um, and certainly a mentor to me uh, and a close friend and someone who without question is, is ready for that. And I, you know, I hope the next GM hiring cycle, she, she gets those interviews she deserves because no matter who's in a room with Don, everyone knows she's the smartest person in the room. Ah, that is, that is a great hopeful note for us to end on, Sam. Thank you so much for your time. Um, it, it has been really sort of uplifting to talk about because there's been so much bad um, in the world, you know, when it comes to the way women are treated lately. So it, it is a great thing to talk about. And it's great to see women on the sidelines. We're so grateful for your time. Everybody, make sure you go give Sam a follow at SamRap10. At first, I thought you weren't on Twitter. And I was like, ah, she's smart. But then I realized you're actually on Twitter. So <laughs> Yeah, I meant the bullet about it i how long ago um and luckily the the, uh, the terrible comments i received don't bother me they bother my wife way more than they bother me so uh, if you see anyone defending me on twitter from a burner account that's exactly <laughs> everyone <laughs> I love it. everyone should have someone in their life who will defend you via burner account like we all <laughs> need that person <laughs> that is so true i love her, her promotion in that way I, you'll never see me responding but she definitely does <laughs> Uh, Sam Rappaport, you're the best. Uh, We're very grateful for your time. Thanks for stopping by. Julian J, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Sam Rappaport is terrific. Um, I'm so glad that we were able to have her on the show, Jane. It's, it's, um, you know, a lot of times it feels like change comes really slowly. And then sometimes it feels like change comes quickly and in bunches. And being able to see just feels like, you know, weekly we're hearing about some other woman who's involved in the NFL in some way. And um, seeing multiple women on the sidelines during a Super Bowl is not something I ever thought I would see probably in my lifetime. No, and it's a real tribute to how how important the hire of Sam Rappaport was by the NFL. <clears throat> and it's not one of those things that you see or is really heralded. I mean, they did kind of, you know, they did they did herald her appearance, but she, one of the things that is so tough about her job is that her constituency is, yes, that front office and Roger Goodell and the people around Roger Goodell, but also every single one of the NFL owners. And I can tell you uh. that not all of them are amenable to the idea of really diversifying their front offices, their staffs, their coaching staffs, front-facing people, all of that. Their head coaches. real resistance. Hmm? I said their head coaches. Their head coaches, exactly. There's some real resistance and unspoken resistance. So you might get somebody who says, oh, yeah, we're super open to, you know, all of your ideas and then hire white man after white man after white man for every available position. And there's nothing, there is nothing that the NFL can do about it if a team wants to take that approach. So for for Sam to be able to go in and find the places where she can make a difference, the ears that are open to her ideas and to also create and help, well, help facilitate a pool of hireable people. I, I mean, I just don't think in four years. I mean, I, I just think it's pretty impressive. 
I did too. And, you know, her talking about Kevin Stefanski, I found really um, in- encouraging and like made me feel optimistic. And the fact that I don't, I think that, you know, Callie Brownson being the the tight ends coach and the acting, you know, acting tight ends coach and acting wide receivers coach on the sideline is something that sort of went unmentioned and unremarked upon because so many players were out with COVID. But that was the first time we had a woman actually coaching a position live during games, not you know, someone who is a strength coach or, you know, not to diminish those roles, but (laughs) it's the first time that we had that. And it sort of didn't really get talked about much. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because I think at first the idea what Catherine Smith, when she was hired by the bills, it was to, it was basically, you know, she was the first full-time coach in the league. And and again, we're going back maybe five years and she was, you know, it was more like film stuff and, you know, inside the office, that was Mm -hmm. the kind of stuff she was doing. I wasn't necessarily sure that women would be advancing beyond that into position roles as quickly as they have. And in, again, not because uh, not because women are incapable of that sort of thing, but because the structures of, that that are in place do not see women as coaching men in football. And I think that is something that is starting to be eroded because women are in there and they're doing a good job. And I, but I didn't think they'd necessarily get their shot and, and for it to, for women to be getting their shot in these roles and for it not to be considered an oddity, um, for them to be getting, you know, actual defense coach, defensive coaching positions is quite extraordinary because as you know, when I started covering the jets and, you know, we're talking, we're going back 15 years now, but they would have like a lot of NFL teams would have these weekend clinics for women that were like football 101, <laughs> right? They, they shrink yes. it and pink it. They Look, weren't even shrinking it and pinking it at that time. But this only <laughs> stopped like three years ago. I mean, right. I, I, and you'd have, you'd have some coach go in and he'd talk to the ladies and he'd bring in a couple of players and he'd talk about how tight their pants are and it would be titter, titter, titter. And that would be the idea of how women wanted to consume and interact with the NFL and football which is, of course, incredibly insulting. (laughs) It is. I mean, I think about, I mean, I remember when this was, I I started complaining about these a while ago. Um, Yeah, I mean, like we, I think, pretty sure we have this in Chicago. Like it was like wine and something, like wine and gridiron or something like that. And you came in and- (laughs) Because we're all wine drinkers. We're all wine drunks. There was even (laughs) one, I think- It's all we can do to get away from our lives is we just have to start drinking wine at three o'clock in the afternoon every day. Right, right, right. There was a baseball team that had like pedicures, like wine and pedicures while they explained baseball to you. And and then I think of women like Liz Loza, who's like a fantasy guru, um, who is like, you know, knows how many women are playing fantasy football and knows how seriously they take it. And the disconnect between the way we treated women and not like the NFL does a great job of the way they treat women now, but the way we treated women just a couple years ago um, to the difference that it, that it makes to have women actually involved in the game um, is huge. And I'm, I haven't seen one of those for a couple years, the like football one-on-one things. So I don't know, maybe we're headed in the right direction. To me, that goes with like pink hats and like, you know, all that other stuff. Yeah. A hundred percent. But this, but this Super Bowl, you know, where you have women coaching Jennifer King and uh, the Washington team now, and then you have Sarah Thomas, Who's um, you know, refing the game? First woman to to ref an NFL game, yeah, of Super Bowl, and and also first full time coach in the league. There was a woman who was a replacement coach, um, when the the 
the referee union was having issues with the NFL. Um, but, and so there was a replacement coach who was a woman in that batch, but, but she's the first, Sarah Thomas is the first full-time, uh, referee. She does a bang up job and she's been doing it for years now. And I think, you know, it's, it is normalized. So we're seeing a lot of women being normalized in these positions and that's good. And, you know, the thing is that when you actually have women in these positions, you give them authority and power, then you will, I think, hopefully, you will start to have some of those situations that we find so egregious, like, you know, hiring Antonio Brown or, or you know, some of these hires, um, the lack of diversity, all of this stuff. I do think that the presence of, of women in a real, you know, way uh, will start to have of an effect on that. Um, maybe not right away, but I think, you know, at some point it will, it's an, it's, it's one thing when it's noted from the outside and condemned from the outside. It's another thing when you have someone around the boardroom who is able to make common cause with other people around that table to make a point about the type of program, uh, you want to present to the world. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and back to Sarah Thomas, I mean, she did this with Andy Reid yapping in her ear. The entire Super Bowl. So I mean, <laughs> Love I it. mean, should we should we make a brief comment about the game? Um, that was terrible. <laughs> it was not good football. The whole game was bad. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at a player, Patrick Mahomes, quarterback of the Chiefs, who may have been brought back too soon from concussion protocol, and I think that's you know that's obviously an issue. You talk about the offensive line uh, for the Chiefs not doing a good job, and of course, some of that's because you know the Bucks defense was able to to rush around the edge like that which was just all game long um but you know I worry about like a young quarterback like Mahomes in a game like this where they don't get good protection because it isn't just about this game it ends up being about Mahomes career um we know that part of the reason Tom Brady has been able to have the career he has was because you know his offensive lines have been pretty good and that's an important part of the equation yeah I completely agree so, uh, you know, anybody can do a day after the Super Bowl um, review. It's not everybody <laughs> can still remember what happened in the Super Bowl 10 days later like we can. So I hope that you guys have enjoyed this super, super late Super Bowl review. <laughs> That's great. That's excellent. That's really good. Actually, you know what? Next week, let's do the uh, the Falcons-Patriots Super Bowl. Let's say, or next week, we'll do last year's NBA Finals. Exactly. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks so much for sticking around. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening. Give us a follow on social media at Jane Sports and at Julie DeCaro. We hope that you guys will subscribe and rate the show if you like it. If you don't, then, you know, just if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And we'll see you next week here on The Ladies Room. <laughs>